Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 11. It tells us about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. I'm sure you had the experience watching a ball game or some sporting event of some kind, and uh, back behind the cameras, very strategically placed, someone's holding up a sign that says, John 3.16. Just reminding people that in this one verse, we have the gospel proclaimed. This must be the most popular verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. Well, actually, it's probably not. It's the most popular verse in the church, but the most popular verse in the rest of the world is Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. Every sinner in America knows that verse. Just try to stand for anything to say that something is right and that something is wrong. And people that you didn't even know read the Bible will quote to you, but the Bible says, judge not. And indeed, Jesus does warn us about judging one another, and we need to heed his warning. But that's not the only thing the Bible says about the matter of judgment. Indeed, the Bible sometimes actually commands us to do some kind of judgment. Judge not. It's not the Bible's last word on the subject. This is particularly true as we approach the Lord's table. For according to the scriptures, before before this can be a time of celebration for us, it must first be a time of judgment. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what our text is about. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 32. Let me read it. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why so many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. There are three truths here. Three truths about three kinds of judgment mentioned in this text. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, but uh, briefly talk about the other two. The first is this. God says, examine yourself. God says, examine yourself. Now, self-examination or self-judgment, if you will, is terribly uninviting. In fact, one could argue that the reason our society moves so fast and works so hard and plays so intensely and drinks so much and does drugs so widely is because we are trying to escape having to face ourselves as we are. But here, God calls us to repeatedly and intentionally, (coughs) intentionally, take a critical look at ourselves every time we approach the Lord's table. Verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
God commands self-examination. Now that's easy to say, but what does it mean? What self-examination does God have in mind? Well, the most common answer is that we need to identify and confess our sin. Coming to the sacrament while clinging to our sin would surely be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Indeed, Hebrews 10 warns us about continuing to sin willfully after we know the truth. There we read that it's it's a trampling of the Son of God underfoot. It's treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, and it insults the spirit of grace. And so we're called to examine our lives, to search out every remnant of sin, to never allow sin to remain unchallenged in us, especially as we approach the Lord's Supper. That's what that prayer of Psalm 139 is about. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. This is the daily cleansing that Jesus spoke of when he he met with his disciples in, in the upper room the night of the Last Supper. As he washed their feet, he said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean. So this morning I tell you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you rest in his work on the cross for you, you're clean before God. But don't neglect washing your feet, confessing and repenting, applying the gospel to yourself day after day, every day of your life. And nowhere is it more appropriate than as we approach the Lord's table. God says, examine yourself. But as much as the Bible teaches self-examination and daily cleansing, this this text actually says more than that. In verse 28 and 29 we read, one ought to examine himself later recognizing the body of the Lord. Or as the King James Version puts it, examine himself discerning the Lord's body. Here God calls us to a specific kind of self-examination to examine whether we recognize or discern the Lord's body as we come to the table. What does that mean? In what way are we to recognize the Lord's body. Does that mean we have to become theological giants able to explain the mysteries of God's presence in the bread and wine? Whether Jesus is present here physically or only spiritually or only symbolically? Some of the most, some of the reformers, most notably Luther and Zwingli, got so caught up in that controversy, they stopped speaking to one another. But discerning Christ's body in the supper is not some mystical, theological thing for the theologians only. It's a practical issue for everyone who eats the bread and drinks the wine. We must understand we're coming here not to some empty religious ritual. Here we're coming to Jesus. We're coming to commune with our Savior. To trample in here like it's nothing is to trample underfoot the only hope we have, the body and blood of Jesus. So I must admonish you, do not come to this sacrament in a casual manner, as if you're just filling another square, checking off another item on the church list of church activities. No, here in the bread and wine we see Jesus. In eating and drinking the bread and wine, we're coming to him. You'll never be worthy to eat the Lord's Supper, but you can participate in a worthy manner when you come to the table with Christ 
in view. When you come without pretense, without any mental reservation, resting in him for your forgiveness, receiving him in faith, looking to him for the nourishment and strength of your soul, and confident that God calls you his child as, and invites you to come, not because of how good you are, but because of Jesus. May the words of Bernard of Clairvaux be our prayer as we come. Jesus, joy of loving hearts, fount of life, light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we come unfilled to you again. We taste of you, O living bread, and long to feast upon you still. We drink of you, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from you to fill. God says, examine yourself. Is this your heart's desire this morning? Coming to Jesus. Oh, but when the Lord says we must, we need to discern or recognize the body of Christ, there's yet another meaning which comes into focus here. For the body of Christ is one of the Bible's favorite names for the church. We corporately, along with all other believers, are the body of Christ. Now this actually was the big issue Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians. When the people in Corinth, the church in Corinth, came together to eat the Lord's Supper, their, their routine, their, what they did was a little different than what we did. What we did. What we do. They, they, when they came, it was more like what we do on Monday, Thursday, where it was a meal together. They came to eat a meal, and celebrating the supper was part of the meal. The only problem is they didn't share. The rich sat over here in their corner eating their fine food, and the poor sat over here with little or nothing to eat. And those who came late, well, tough on them. We're not waiting. And so the Apostle Paul writes, what do you think you're doing here? How can you come and celebrate Christ's body given for you on the cross while you trample all, all over Christ's body that's sitting in the chairs in the rest of the room? It's contradictory. It's as if you're beating Jesus up again. Remember Jesus himself said, and as much as you've done it to the least of my, these my brothers, you've done it to me. Don't you see Jesus sitting there next to you? This is the primary sin being addressed in 1 Corinthians 11. Not a failure to be good enough. Not a failure to comprehend some theological mystery. But the trampling down of the church, the body of Christ. The selfish neglect of our brothers and sisters in Christ. While we're claiming to be worshiping Christ. So this morning I tell you, if you have sinned against your Christian brother or sister and have not taken steps to be reconciled, you have no business participating in the Lord's Supper. You cannot celebrate Christ's death for you while you remain estranged or vengeful toward another member of his body. Worship is not just between you and God. It involves others, his body, of his people. I've seen situations where Two Christians who would not even speak to one another sit in the same room and eat the Lord's Supper. I, I, I would be afraid to do that. And don't you do it. Don't 
trample on the body of Jesus. Don't you dare. You see, with many layers of meaning for the confession of our own sin to discerning Christ in what we're doing to how we deal with his body in the pew with us, God says, you need to examine yourself. So why is it big, such a big deal? Well, that is spelled out in the second point, the second kind of judgment that our text talks about, and that's this, that God chastens his wayward children. God chastens his wayward children. God calls us to this judgment of self-examination that we talked about. What if we do not judge ourselves? What if we say, I don't care, I'm not going to do that. What if we come trampling into God's presence anyway, treating holy things with apathy and veiled contempt? What's going to happen? Well, one of two things. Perhaps nothing happens. That's right, nothing. You and I have both seen this, I'm sure. Someone who just turns his back on the Lord, trashes a church, or just plays the hypocrite in the church, and nothing happens. Oh, but when nothing happens, don't misunderstand God's patience. Judgment day is coming, as we'll discuss in a minute. So that's one possibility. A person refuses to examine himself, and nothing happens. But if this person truly is a child of God, something is going to happen. God will chasten, judge in the sense of disciplining his wayward child. Look at verses 30 to 32 again. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. If we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined. This is the discipline spoken of in Hebrews 12, where we're told the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So how does God do that? How does God chasten us? Well, several ways. He chastens us by his word. 2 Timothy 4 Timothy is exhorted to preach the word, and that involves correcting and rebuking as well as encouraging with great patience and careful instruction. God, like most parents, speaks first. So we read his word, we hear it preached. God speaks to us. He rebukes us. He chastens us and convicts us of our sin. God chastens his children by his word. But he also uses his church. This doesn't have to be formal procedure, although sometimes it's formal disciplinary procedure, but, but all the time God calls every one of us to admonish one another, to correct one another if necessary, to even rebuke one another, to go to a brother or sister we see sinning and call his hand on it. Now folks, if anyone ever does that to you, no matter how badly it hurts, you listen. It's harder to do that than it is to have someone come and speak to you. God chastens by the admonition of our brothers and sisters as well as by his word. But there's another way that God chastens his wayward children and that's what we see here in our text. 
God had chastened his children in Corinth by bringing them pain. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to raise a deaf world. And so, Paul writes, some of you are weak. And some of you are sick. And some of you have fallen asleep or died. God is chastening his wayward children. Well, this does not mean that all adversity that we face is a result of a person's particular sin. That's what Job's friends thought. They were the great theologians. They had this all figured out, and they were wrong. Job was not being chastened because of sin, but before his righteousness. But sometimes God chastens us with sickness and pain. And we need to be asking ourselves, is God trying to get my attention? Have I been ignoring his chastening? Have I closed my ears to his word? That's not a question you ask about somebody else. It's a question you ask about yourself in the time of pain. I remember as if it were yesterday, the first time I heard this, I was seven years old. My parents sat me down, opened the Bible to this passage, and read and explained the seriousness of the Lord's Supper. As I would say to you kids here, this part of our church life is dead serious. God's not playing games with us. When we eat this bread and drink this juice, we're remembering that it's our sins that put Jesus on the cross. So can you imagine how God hates it when we eat the bread and drink the juice as if we're trusting him for forgiveness, but at the same time we just go on living in sin? No wonder he punished these people in Corinth. No wonder he made some of them sick. God will not allow us to make a mockery of his grace. Throughout my teenage years and beyond, I never forgot what I learned when I was seven years old. It put the fear of God in me, I must tell you. In fact, sometimes when I was cherishing some sin in my heart and just kind of ignoring what God had to say about that, I would walk into church and I would see the table all set and I would go, oh no, (laughs) it's a moment of truth here. Either I must confess my sin and turn away from it. I dare not take God on. Or I risk being chastened like he chastened the people in Corinth when they refused. Thankfully, many times I was called back by the fear of the Lord. Okay, Lord, I give up. I quit. I repent. For I knew God chastens his wayward children. So don't be so foolish as to dare him to bring you to your knees. God can bring you to your knees in a heartbeat, in an instant. And Hebrews 10 writes, Hebrews 10 is written to the church and it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God chastens his children. Don't dare him to do that. That's the second kind of judgment. Finally, there's a third truth here, a third kind of judgment mentioned in our text. 
And that is that God condemns the world. God condemns the world. So what happens if we do not judge ourselves, self-examination, and God does not chasten us with his fatherly discipline, he just lets us get away with it, go merrily on our way in our sin, well, then what happens? Well, look again at verse 31 and 32. But if we judge ourselves, we will not come under judgment. When we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. The reason for all God's chastening is that we not be condemned with the wicked. For God will judge a wicked world. Now this is not a popular subject in our society. Before we pride ourselves on tolerance of anything and everything. But nonetheless, God's judgment is certain. The Bible says so in just so many places. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to a man once to die and after that face judgment. Romans 14, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now for those who are children of God by virtue of their adoption in Christ, those who have trusted the Savior, been justified before God by Christ, for them this is not a frightening day. They will not be condemned. God's been chastening them all along as his children. They belong to him. They will not be condemned. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Romans 8, we find the same kind of promise. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But for the unbelieving, and the disobedient, judgment day, is the terrible day of God's wrath, the day of reckoning. Just a few verses later in John 5, after that wonderful promise, Jesus goes on to say, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. God condemns the sinful world. That day of judgment is described quite plainly for us in Revelation 20. Let me read. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Make no mistake, God will condemn the wicked world. So how may we escape that fearful judgment day? Christ has borne our judgment already. We who trust him. That's what he was doing on the cross. 
And that's the awesome truth we affirm as we come to the Lord's table. We eat the bread that represents to us his body dying on the cross instead of me. We drink the wine, which represents his lifeblood poured out on the ground as an atonement for my sin. Here we confess, I have no hope but this. Jesus took my condemnation. So we come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Turn from every allegiance, from every other hope. Cling to him. Rest in him. By faith we take him to ourselves like life-sustaining food. For he is our life. He is the life giver. As we come to the table this morning, I, God tells us about three kinds of judgment. You're going to be judged in one of these three ways. So this morning I call you to examine yourself. Sit in judgment on your heart and see if you're really resting in Jesus. And especially consider your relationship to his body as church. Secondly, endure God's discipline. If God is chastening you, take hope. He loves you enough to save you from hell. Run to him for forgiveness and restoration, no matter what the cost. And finally, flee God's wrath. There is a terrible day coming. The calm of our lives may simply be the calm before the storm. Oh, don't face Judgment Day without Jesus. You will have no hope. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we live in a time where we just want to think everything's okay. Everyone is okay. Every way of thinking is okay. Everything anybody believes is okay. No matter what it is, we just say whatever. And here we read, Lord, that that's not true. And that you call us to be diligent, to look at ourselves. You promise us that if we don't, you'll be looking at us. And if you don't, it's because we don't even know you, no matter what we profess. And we're doomed for the day of judgment. Oh, Lord, quicken our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.